It is a wonderful privilege to be here uh, with you for these couple days, which are going to go by really quick. Um, I'm always very grateful for the privilege of being in settings like this. I know you've got stuff on your minds, right? I've got stuff on my mind. There's things back home, um, family. There's things back home, church. And so it's a little costly to take some time out like this and be together. And yet I am convinced that absolutely nothing gets wasted in God's economy. Um, And so here we are. We're gathered for these 24 hours, a little bit longer. And God has much for us. And so I'm just eagerly anticipating what God has for us relationally, uh, what God has for us spiritually through his word and through our time of fellowship. And so it's just a wonderful privilege for me to be here. I've already had the opportunity to get reacquainted with some folks that I haven't seen for a long time, some folks that I've seen fairly recently, and I'm looking forward to getting to know some new friends uh, while I'm here. So, Jeff, I want to say thank you very much for the privilege of being with you. Um, And you've been on my home turf now for a few years. It's a joy to be on your home turf. So thank you so much for the invitation. I'm just especially pleased to be a part of a conference with this theme. Great work, greater word. Um, Let me give you a little preview of where I want to go in the sessions that have been assigned to me. Tonight we're just going to do a front-on direct address of that theme. The power and sufficiency of the word in the life of the church. It's tonight's theme. Uh, Tomorrow, in our first session together, we're going to spend some time looking at Psalm 119, a text, as you know, that is unparalleled in its extended exuberance about the power and sufficiency of God's Word. We'll do that tomorrow morning. And then in our third session together, I want us to look at the main theme, What what I understand all of us would would recognize as the main theme of God's word, and that is this glorious news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. God's plan to save, God's plan to rescue and redeem a people for himself through the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And I want us to see how it, the gospel, is meant to function powerfully in our lives and in our ministries. That's our plan. Uh, But first, this evening... Let's talk about the sufficiency and the power of the word in the life of the church. I want to pray before we begin. Let's ask for God's help. Father, I don't think it's hard for any one of us to imagine the potential that is represented by our gathering here. There are people back home in churches that you've called us to minister to. There are families. There is our own spiritual life with years before us. God, as we think about what might happen as we gather together for these brief hours to be together with one another and together with you and together over, in one sense, over your word, but in a far greater sense, under your word. God, it's not hard for us to imagine the potential of that, and you tell us that you are able to do far more than we can ask or even imagine. 
And so, Lord, we pray, would you do much? We recognize that little is much when God is in it. And so, God, we offer up this brief time, our energy, weak as it is. We give ourselves to you and we pray, God, use this for your own glory in your church and in the world. Yet, Father, I recognize that there is perhaps a more immediate purpose. I want to pray for what Jeff has reminded us of already this evening, that you might encourage our faith tonight. God, remind us of the power. Remind us of the truth. Help us to, again, find our hearts and our minds stirred by the simple truth of the all-sufficiency and the great power of your word, because it's your word. And so, God, open our hearts, open our minds, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So this evening, the sufficiency and power of the word in the life of the church, and I believe the place to begin is with the very simple assertion that God intends to form his people through his word. It is God's intent to form his people by his word. Christ's beautiful bride, for whom he gave his life, and the care of whom he has amazingly, think about it, entrusted to the likes of us. Formed, week in, week out, year in, year out, patiently but faithfully formed by the faithful administration of the word. That is how, as Paul says to the elders of Ephesus in Acts chapter 20, this is how we care for the church of God. So let me say it again. God intends to form his people through his word. Now, I use that word form very deliberately because it carries with it both the idea of creating something, bringing something into being. He formed us. He brought us into being. And it also carries the idea of shaping. He forms us continually, conforms us, reforms us. I love this picture of God as a Sculpture, a paint, a, a patient sculptor, forming us into the image of his son. That is true of both his people individually and his people as gathered in local congregations. God intends, it is his intention to form his people by his word. James speaks so clearly of his own will. He brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. James 1.18. Peter says so clearly, You have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. 1 Peter 1.23. And there is that wonderful passage in Ephesians chapter 5 that we're all familiar with, but for a different reason. In fact, we can be so focused on the instruction to us as husbands that we overlook this richly 
meaningful statement made about God forming us by his word. Just listen to what Paul says. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loves the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she, the church, might be holy and without blemish. There are so many places that speak of this truth that God intends to form, to create, and to shape His people by His Word. But the place that I want us to go this evening to anchor us is Deuteronomy chapter 8. Will you please turn there with me? Deuteronomy chapter 8. I don't know of any place in Scripture that speaks quite so eloquently or compellingly of this truth as this passage that we find right at the beginning of Deuteronomy chapter 8. Now, I'm guessing some words from Deuteronomy 8 verse 3 are familiar to most, if not all of us. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And that's where we'll end up in just a moment. But I want us to pay attention to the context here in order to heighten the point of verse 3. So let me read from verse 1, Deuteronomy chapter 8. The whole commandment that I command you today, you shall be careful to do that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Now please notice the very purposeful cause and effect language of verse 3. Did you catch did you did you catch this? And he humbled you and he let you hunger and fed you with manna which you did not know nor did your fathers know. Notice this that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone but by every word that proceeds from God's mouth. In other words, God says, I satisfied your physical needs so that having what you desired physically, you'd realize you were still not satisfied. Because you were made for more than bread. You were made for more than just your physical appetites. There is more to you, God is saying, than that. You were made for a relationship with God. You were made by God You were made for God. You were made like God. And in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3, God says, it's my word that is going to vitalize and nourish that part of you, which is the main part of you, the real you that was made for relationship with me. God is saying, what you need is me. And I will give you myself. I will feed you with myself by my word. That's how you will live. Friends, you know this. We were made to need spiritual sustenance. 
And God has given His Word to nourish us spiritually, to form us, to bring us into being, and then to shape us. We need God, and God is present through His Word. He makes Himself present in His Word. So we're not being bibliolaters here this weekend. We're not somehow separating God from His Word. No, God's Word is what it is precisely because it is God's Word. Its nature and its power derive immediately from its author. So close is the connection between God and His Word that how we respond to God's Word is an accurate index of how we're responding to God. And God says it right here, as clear as can be, you live by the Word of God. Natural man, unregenerate man, comes to life by this Word of God. And then, having been brought to life, God's people continue to live. They are sustained. They're nourished. They're shaped by the Word of God. One of my very favorite moments in the Gospels, it comes in John chapter 6. Perhaps you'll remember this. Jesus is preaching to the crowd. There's a large crowd that is gathered. And Jesus is saying some hard things. He begins to talk about him being the bread and that they need to eat him. And in fact, he goes further and says they need to drink of his blood. And there are people out in the crowd that begin to murmur and grumble. You remember this? They begin to say that this is a hard saying. Who, who can listen to that? And this is one of those moments in the Gospels where you wish you had video, right? Because wouldn't you love to see the look on Jesus' face as he looks out over the crowd and begins to see people going because of what he said? And at one point, John tells us, Jesus turns to his disciples, the immediate disciples, and he says to them, you remember this, are you going to go away too? And Peter, in a moment of spirit-inspired brilliance, says to Jesus, where else are we going to go? You have the words of life. By which Peter did not mean your words are about life. No, Peter is saying we've been with you long enough, Jesus, to know your words are life to us. Your words are life to us. Where else would we go? We've been with you long enough to know. We live on what you say. God intends to form his people by his word God intends to build his church by his word. As we were anticipating planting Crossway, this is 20 years ago now, um, we were very excited. There was this growing group of people who were gathering around the idea, and they were excited. There was just a lot of energy that was happening. And at one point during that process, um, I was sitting over lunch with an older wiser pastor, and he said something to me that I just will never forget. Um, He looked at me and he said, Mike, listen, it's one thing to draw a crowd. It's another thing to build a church. Um, The church is built. The church is formed. The church is created. The church is shaped by the word, and that happens In multiple ways, you know, in Acts chapter 6, we have that lovely statement made by the apostles that they 
They need to dedicate themselves to, what is it, remember? Prayer and ministry of the Word, right? And sometimes, especially as preachers, we can be tempted to draw too quick an equation between preaching and the ministry of the Word. But that would be a mistake. I mean, certainly preaching is a ministry of the Word. I would argue that it's the central ministry of the Word that takes place in the life of the church, but it is not by any means the only ministry of the Word that shapes the local church. The ministry of the Word happens through various administrations of the Word, by means of all of which God is forming His church. I mean, think of the ministry of the Word, that phrase as as kind of a, a big umbrella, this overarching category underneath which we find various ministries, administrations of the Word, preaching of the Word, personal counsel of the Word, training by the Word, rebuke with the Word, evangelistic proclamation of the Word. There are many things that the Word must do that cannot be done by the regular Sunday morning preaching of the Word. And it's this larger ministry of the Word that forms the church, and the effect of that multiplied ministry is enormous. At least that's what the Bible says. And it's amazing all of the things the Bible claims it can do relating to the forming of the local church. Just listen to this. This is, this is an incomplete but representative catalog of the church-forming, church-shaping ability of God's Word. God's Word initiates faith. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God, Romans 10, 17. God's Word gives new life. It regenerates. You have been born again through the living and the abiding Word of God, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 23. God's Word helps us to grow. I commend you to the word of his grace, which can build you up. Acts 20, verse 32. God's word enables our sanctification. The word of God, which is at work in you who believe. 1 Thessalonians 2, 13. God's word actively sanctifies us. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. John 17, 17. God's word searches and convicts. The Word of God is living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It's able to penetrate even to the division of joints and marrow. It pierces and judges the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. You know anything else that can do that? God's Word says God's Word can do that. God's Word refreshes and renews. I mean, just read Psalm 119 and notice how many times it says... Give me life according to your word. And I think about Psalm 19. In fact, I'd like you to take a look at that psalm with me for just a moment. Psalm 19. This is, this is actually the first portion of Scripture that I came to love. The reason for that is because I remember as a young boy, my father loving this passage over us as a family on family vacation as he walked us through memorizing this psalm together. Just look at Psalm 19, starting at verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. Anybody interested? 
Or is it just me that needs my soul revived every now and then? The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. Listen, guys, when you read that, don't just let that slip through your brain like some sort of biblical language. That means something. And if we stop and think about it for a moment, we all recognize what that's talking about. Rejoicing the heart. It's something we all long for. And this book says this book can do that. Look at the next phrase. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. Okay, there is a biblical phrase that we might not immediately recognize. What does that mean to have your eyes enlightened? So go back with me just a moment to 1 Samuel chapter 14. Don't turn there. Just go in your mind. The Philistines have attacked the Israelites. Saul is seeking to to rout them. And so he makes this rash command. You remember this? Nobody eats until we've defeated the Philistines, which is kind of foolish because soldiers need their strength, right? But he says, nobody eats. Well, away from him is his son Jonathan and his small guerrilla band. They, they don't hear the command. So they're walking through the forest there and they, they come upon the, the narrative here is just beautiful. It slows down. And you see Jonathan and his friends coming upon this, this honeycomb. And Jonathan takes his spear and he dips the end of it into that and he brings it up to his fingers and he takes some of that honey and he puts it on his tongue. And you know what the very next phrase in your Bible is? His eyes brighten. That's what this book says this book can do for you spiritually. It's amazing what the Bible says it can do. And if that is true, it's just stunning. I mean, no wonder God said, man lives. You will live by the word that comes out of my mouth. The power of the word to shape the church in its faith, in its birth, in its growth, in its integrity, in its character, in its consistency, in its joy. And that is exactly what God intended. God's intent is to form his people by his word. All of these things the word does, and God has focused that efficacy with particular intensity on, on the life and into the life of the local church. So let's consider now in the time that we have left, what is it about the word that makes it so useful, so able to form the church. I want to highlight four things about the Word. Four things that are true of God's Word by which it forms the church. And by the way, I, I don't think you should be in local church ministry if you don't have deep and abiding convictions about these four things. Um, when I taught at Trinity, I used to tell students, I don't think you should graduate. You're great. It's about your convictions. I don't think you should be handling God's word publicly if you don't have deep and abiding convictions. These particular convictions that we want to walk through. So first, the first attribute of God's word that makes it able to form the church is what we might call the God-breathedness 
of Scripture. One of the privileges you have when you're the speaker is you get to make up words. The God-breathedness of Scripture. You can see where I got that. You've got to start here. 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is breathed out by God. It's actually from God, from the mind of God, and that's now been outered, uttered by Him. God really spoke this. So when we refer to this book as God's Word, that is not just some offhand name that we use. That's what this is. It's God's Word spoken to us. And the point here is that God has spoken something objective and specific. There's something very specific he's trying to say to us. Again, when I taught at Trinity, I would regularly tell the students to imagine God's face looking out at them from behind every page of Scripture. And he's got an expression on his face. There's something he's saying. There's something he's trying to get done. There's some greatly desired effect that he's seeking to accomplish through his communication to us, God is speaking and He's saying something and He means it. He has full authority. We get it wrong sometimes in the way that we speak when we talk about our exercising some sort of authority over the text, even in our posture that I'm trying to, trying to embody right now. When we, when we think about us gaining mastery over the text. Here's the image, folks. We place ourselves under the Word of God. We submit to its authority. It reminds me of a story I heard a long time ago about the man who was making his visit to uh, the great art museum in Paris, the Louvre. I've never been there, but I understand that the painting, the Mona Lisa, is actually not very big. It's a small painting. It hangs on the wall, and there is constantly a guard right by the painting. And So this guy comes, and, and he does the art critic thing. You know, He looks at the painting, and... He looks at it this way, and he kind of stands over here, and he kind of looks at it this way, and finally he says out loud, ah, I don't like it. To which the guard says, sir, these paintings are no longer being judged. <laughs> and then he adds, the viewers are. Ah, it's the same here. This is no longer being judged. The reader is. So God has spoken something, and he has spoken with absolute authority. And this book is that word written. And our task in preaching and teaching is to let God's word speak. To create space for God's word to be heard. The greatest compliment you will ever receive when you are done teaching or preaching is... God spoke to me today. In fact, may it be the experience of your listeners, like what I often experience when I'm reading the magisterial prophets, you know, when you're in Isaiah and in Jeremiah, and you sometimes lose track of who's talking. Is this the prophet or is this God? May that be your people's experience on Sunday morning. It sure looks like my pastor up there, but it sounds like God's speaking to me through his word. Now, let's break this down. God speaks. God speaks. This is the starting point for all theology, and it certainly is the starting point for our theology of Scripture. God has spoken to man. One of the primary metaphors 
used of God in the Bible is the metaphor of light. This is the message. God is light, and in him there is no darkness. Now that is a metaphor that is, I think, full of meaning. But one very clear implication is that God is a self-revealing God. It is in the nature of God to be communicating himself. He delights to make himself known. So we see him in history taking the initiative in creation. He makes himself known in the great redemptive acts of the Old Testament. He makes himself known in Christ. He makes himself known. And all throughout this unfolding, this, this making known of himself, there is this special way that he's taken initiative. He's spoken. He's communicated in words. In fact, it's one of the major points of contrast in the prophets between the false gods and the one true God, right? Our God speaks. These gods, they're dumb. They do not speak. So he's a speaking God, but not only does our God speak, our God writes. All scripture is breathed out by God. God has made it a point to have his word inscripturated. And we can take this, in fact, we need to take this one step further. Not only does God speak, not only does God write, but by what he has written, he still speaks. In fact, I want you to see this. Um, Turn with me to the book of Hebrews. Chapter 3 and verse 7. Now, I want you to know I would never build an argument um, on the basis of what I'm showing you right now, at least not by itself. This is simply illustrating something that I'm trying to communicate. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 7. The author of Hebrews says, verse 7, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, and he proceeds to quote from Psalm 95. Now, it's interesting that he makes a point of saying that this was not just David speaking, but the Holy Spirit speaking. It's a very important point he makes, but what I want to call your attention to is the tense of the verb. Did you notice this? Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, says. This writer is quoting something written centuries earlier, and he's speaking of it as something that the Holy Spirit is saying right now. You see, by what he has spoken, he still speaks. Now, that's just an example of the principle that's found in the very next chapter of the book of Hebrews. The word of God is living and it's active. So first, God has spoken. There is something specific and objective, and it's here in this book. This is God speaking, so when you read this book, see his face, feel his heart. And because it's his word, it has power to shape. And by this word, he intends to form his people. Second. The second attribute of Scripture that makes it able to form God's people is its understandableness. Its understandableness. Now, I could have said it's perspicuity, but when was the last time you heard that word in polite conversation? 
the understandableness of Scripture. Think of Paul's words to Timothy. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a workman who does not need to be ashamed and who carefully handles the word of truth, correctly handles the word of truth. In other words, there is such a thing as a right handling of God's word. It's possible, and please don't limit the application of that to preaching. This applies to all of the ministry of the word by which the people of God are formed. Remember, we said just a moment ago that this is from God. It's a, it's a revelation. It is a making known of himself by God. And given what we know about God, that he is good, and what he does is good, we can know that his speaking to us is meant to be understood. He means for us to get this. He's not playing some cruel game with us, just toying with us, giving us a message that is just frustrating to us like some unbreakable code. It's not as if God is saying, yeah, I'll communicate with them, but they'll never understand. No, God has spoken, and he means for his people to understand what he has said. There is some, I said this a moment ago, there is some greatly desired effect that he is seeking to accomplish in his people, and for that effect to be accomplished, it's essential that we actually understand what he is saying. So we speak of the understandableness of Scripture. There's a beautiful snapshot of this in the Old Testament books of Ezra and Nehemiah, these twin books that describe God's people after the exile. Now back in the place that God has for them, there's this picture of God's word forming the people again. In Ezra chapter 7, we read Ezra had devoted himself to the study and the observance of the law of the Lord and to teaching its decrees and laws in Israel to the people of God. And then in Nehemiah chapter 8, there's this wonderful scene. All of the people are gathered there. You remember they built this wooden platform so Ezra can get up on it and address the people who are gathered there. And then here's what we read. Ezra opened the book. And he read from the book of the law of God, making it clear. And giving the meaning so that the people could understand what was being read. You see, Ezra himself was able to understand the word such that he could explain it so that the people could understand and therefore the word could have its shaping influence among them. Now remember, please, remember 2 Timothy 2.15. Paul says, study, work hard, do your best, be a workman. Nobody drifts into excellence. Nobody. Nobody drifts into understanding God's word. Biblically speaking, please notice this, drift is always away. You never drift into good things. Some parts of this book are challenging. They require diligence. So there is no room for being kind of cavalier, in our ministry of the word, but there is lots of room for confidence. In fact, conviction 
in our ministry of the word because of the understandableness of Scripture. Let me say it this way. The Scripture will yield to believing meditation and study. The Scripture will yield to believing meditation and study. I I read that statement many, many years ago, and it has been so helpful to me. It's been helpful to me as I teach others. It's been helpful for me on Friday afternoon as I'm preparing for Sunday when the Scripture doesn't seem like it's going to yield. And I remember God intends me to understand. And so I work hard to show myself approved, a workman who correctly handles this word that God has given to us. And so as a minister of the word, here's here's the result, guys. As a minister of the word, you can engage in expectant, faith-filled, and therefore faithful study, knowing the perspicuity of God's word knowing that God intends to use his word to form his people. Third, the third attribute of God's word that makes it able to form the local church is its usefulness. Its usefulness. Think back to 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture is breathed out by God and it's useful. I kind of like the old King James translation. It's profitable. Because that speaks not just of its usefulness, but of the value of that usefulness. It's profitable. God's word is profitable. God's people benefit greatly from that word. They live, they flourish by being formed by God's word. Now, let's ask the question, how does Scripture exercise its usefulness? Think about this. How does that work? It's not some kind of mystical, hard-to-describe quality kind of thing. No, it is by the faithful ministry of the Word. Here's what Paul says. It's by teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. By those means, the Bible demonstrates its usefulness in shaping the people of God. So let me just share a personal illustration. This has happened many years ago, several years ago anyway now, I was, I was out speaking at a conference and between the conference and the Sunday of preaching, we had a day off and so my buddy and I decided we'd take some time and drive up to Gettysburg and so we had three or four hours in the car together and I figured I'd take advantage of the opportunity of being with this dear friend and begin to share with him just a little dynamic that I was sensing in my marriage. I was teaching at Trinity at the time and I had about a 45-minute commute at the end of a long day And so typically on the way home from school, I would be imagining dinner waiting on the table for me when I got home. In fact, sometimes I would be so creative in my imagination that I would salivate in the car looking forward to dinner. Well, on this particular occasion, I walked into our kitchen and their dinner wasn't. And instead, my wife was on the phone with her mom. And so I kind of looked at her, and I think you guys can relate to this. I think all guys have a certain gesture. Um, Sometimes it comes out. Sometimes it's just, you know, we keep it inside. But here's what the gesture looks like. Can, can, Can we get going? And so I did that to Bev. She's on the phone, and I did one of these. Can Can we get going here, please? And so she got off the phone. Now, I don't. 
I do not speak harshly to my wife. But on that occasion, I spoke to her with an edge in my voice that was not appropriate for my bride. I said to her, do you have to talk to your mom now? Got all day to talk to your mom. Why, why can't we get... So I'm sharing this with my friend now in the car because I sense something's not quite right. And he listens patiently. You know where he took me? James chapter 4. Why are there quarrels and fights among you? Is it not because you want something and you do not get it? And God's word was like a light. Someone else might have come along and said, hey, you, you need to do a little marriage counseling. You need to work on your communication skills. But God said, I'll tell you where the problem is. And shown the light right into my heart. Um, can I just say to you, the Bible is full of that kind of usefulness. In fact, I think it's probably more accurate to say that the Bible in its entirety is that kind of usefulness. Now, it's always not always behavioral, just like that. Sometimes the Bible addresses us on a very behavioral level. Let no unwholesome word come out of your mouth. What does the Bible mean by that? Let no unwholesome word come out of your mouth. Sometimes it gives us a picture of Jesus up on the Mount of Transfiguration. What do you want your people to do after you preach on that? Worship. So wherever the Bible is addressing human being, it proves itself very useful in addressing the dynamics of human being. The Bible is entirely useful as we engage in this ministry of the Word in our local churches, God's word can be trusted to address the real issues in people's lives. So men, we do not have to go fishing for relevant things to say. We do not have to try to frame our teaching in just the right way. No, God's word is useful. He addresses both the ordinary life as well as what Alexander White said at one point, the eternities and the immensities of human being. So do not deprive your people of what is useful to them by trying in your ministry to be more relevant than God. God can be trusted to set the agenda. And his word is what we need. We live by these words. God, God's word is, is so profitable. That is why it is our special duty as ministers of the word to feed God's people this and not something else. God intends to form his people in very particular ways through his word, and he has made it very useful for that purpose. All right, number four. The fourth attribute of God's word that makes it able to form the local church. And I recognize this is a bit of a tautology, but we've got to name it. The fourth attribute of God's word that makes it able to form the local church is its efficacy. Its efficacy. We've already made these statements about its God-breathedness, about its understandableness, about its usefulness. But the question is, is it really able? Is it efficacious? Well, listen to the prophet Isaiah. I think this is the strongest and the clearest statement in all of Scripture regarding the efficacy of God's Word. Isaiah 55, verses 10 and 11. 
This is God speaking. For just as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return, but water the earth, making it bud and flourish, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so my word that goes out from my mouth, it shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. That is a powerful image. And so instructive for us. Just like the rain and the snow, you remember when you first learned about the water cycle. It says the rain and the snow are not going to come down with, without accomplishing what God intended the rain and the snow to accomplish. So my word is not going to return to me without accomplishing that for which it has been sent. I will make it successful in everything that I intend it to accomplish. I mean, just think about all of the metaphors that the Bible uses of itself. They are all metaphors of efficacy. Sword. Hammer. Fire. Even the less aggressive metaphors. Seed. Rain. They all speak of things that get stuff done. Do you remember that list I read earlier of the things that God's Word claims it can do? It initiates faith. It regenerates. It helps us grow. It does the work of sanctification. It searches and convicts the human heart. It refreshes and renews. It revives the soul, rejoices the heart, enlightens the eyes. I just want you to imagine for a moment, as a pastor, as a minister of the Word, what would you like to see happen in your local church? Think about that. What would you like to see happen in your local church among your people? What would you say if someone asked you that question? Well, for me, like this is my list. I want people to be born again. That's something I want. I want people to grow spiritually. I want people to actually progress in their sanctification. I want people to feel conviction over their sin. I want people to be refreshed, alive in their souls, joyful in their hearts, bright in their countenance. Those are the things I would love to see in my church. Wouldn't you? And that is what God says His Word will do for His people. Because of and by the God-breathedness of Scripture, because of and by the understandableness of Scripture, because of and by the usefulness of Scripture, because of and by the efficacy of Scripture, God forms His people. He shapes the local church. Then there's absolutely no question. God intends to form His people through His Word. Or to put it another way, God's people, our local churches, they live and flourish only by believing and receiving His Word. We don't come to every Sunday morning anticipating that there's going to be a revival of historic proportions. But we should come fully anticipating that God intends to form His people. And so... We faithfully bring the word to the people. Yes, wisely. Yes, pastorally. 
sometimes like gentle rain to water their souls, sometimes like a sword to pierce into their hearts and minds. But we bring it in all of our ministry of the word, not as a bludgeon, not as an instrument of our personal power or self-righteousness, but as life, as bread, as water, as instruction and guidance and correction and encouragement with eagerness and with humility and with gentleness and with love. Men, at the end of the day, preaching is an act of love. And then we watch the Word do its work. Friends, it is one thing to gather a crowd. Lots of people can do that for all kinds of different reasons. It is an entirely different thing to build a church. And only those who are committed to the administration of the Word, this Word, shot through all of our ministry, week in, week out, year in, year out, can do that, build a church. And when you do that and finally come to the end, I believe you will actually hear someone say to you, well done, good and faithful servant. To God's glory. Let's pray. Father, even hearing these truths again, we're reminded of our weakness. Thank you that you know our frame, that you remember that we are dust. And yet, as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. And so, Lord, I thank you for your compassion on us as ministers of the word. I thank you for your faithful supply of protection and provision and energy and insight. God, I pray for these men. Ask where the conviction is lacking that you would strengthen it, bring it about. Where there is flagging zeal, Lord, I pray that you would reignite. God, give us great confidence in your word, I pray. And so, Lord, we yield, we submit to your word, which is, in the end, submitting to you. And so, Lord, we thank you. We recognize you as God. Use us for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.